Well, we're in a series about faith. We've titled it Essential Faith, and this is week five, final week in the series. Hopefully it's been beneficial or helpful to you. It's certainly been for me, and uh, in fact, it's probably uh, one of my favorite series that I've done because uh, it's helped me understand this fundamental concept of um, any religion, but certainly Christianity for us. Now, <clears throat> all of us at some time, if you're a young person, you may not think a lot of, take a lot of time to think about this, but all of us try and figure out what, how life works, how God fits in, how prayer fits in, how faith fits in, how my relationships fit, fit in, what's the purpose and meaning of life. Especially you get older, you, you hope you've made wise choices because <laughs> you can't go back and undo it or change it. So with that backdrop, today's topic is extraordinary faith. Now, if I'm a person of faith, I'd like to be a person of great faith. I'd like to do it well. So the question is, what does it look like to have extraordinary faith? Maybe you think of somebody that you've known or someone you know now, and you say, well, they have great faith. Well, what, what's the component of that? Why, why, would you, why do you say that they have great faith? Or maybe uh, if somebody in, in Scripture um, who, who can we look to to figure out what great or extraordinary faith looks like? Well, we talked about a guy named Paul from the New Testament uh, last week, and uh, most of us would think he was a man of great faith, accomplished a lot for God. Uh, ultimately, Jesus would be the best example, I would think, to figure out what extraordinary or great faith looks like. So, Quick review, in this series, we asked the question, like in the video, what is faith? It's essential to uh, Christianity, so we ought, ought to figure out what it is, right? I think it's pretty important. And we started with asking, what is the foundation of our faith? And, and what, when we looked at that, we dealt with a problem that we often have, all of us, something I called circumstantial faith, that we, our faith kind of goes up and down with uh, what we look at, what we see, our experiences. So my life's going well. I tend to think, oh, God's great, and I can have faith in Him. My life's not going so well. My wave tames, t tends to, to falter. So to kind of balance or counterbalance that circumstantial faith issue, we talked about the find it, uh, uh, foundation of our faith. And we said our foundation of our faith is a person, an historical person, a historical event or events, and it's around Jesus, lived 2,000 years ago in present-day Israel, lived a perfect life, as amazing as that is, suffered horribly and died, was crucified, executed. Only person who's ever lived that didn't deserve to die because he never sinned. So he was able to die in our place, we say it that way. So that's the foundation of my faith. Now, why that's so important is that's never going to change. That's an historical event. It happened. It's never going to change. When he was resurrected, uh, hundreds and hundreds of people saw him. So that's the foundation of my faith, not what I experience. Sometimes life's going to be good. Sometimes life's not going to be good. So then we thought, well, what, what's a definition of faith that we could use to kind of apply to life in circumstances and different situations? So this is not the perfect definition. This is one we came up with. Absolute confidence that God is who he says he is. And how do we know who he says he is in this book, right? This book tells us who he is. 
And part of that is that he is trustworthy or he'll keep his promises. So we added that he will do everything he's promised out of his character. So we spent a week talking about some things God has promised. And I left you with three. There's lots of them. <laughs> you can make that a study if you like. But he promises his presence, which is awesome. Almighty God never leaves me or forsakes me. Everybody else, hopefully my wife will never leave me, but anyway, everybody else could leave me, but God's never going to leave me, and it's not dependent on if I'm good or not. Sometimes I don't do the right things. He still doesn't leave me, and that's part of his grace and his mercy. Mercy doesn't give us what we deserve, and we talked about grace, enduring grace. Um, so last week we talked about Paul wanting to get rid of this thorn in his flesh he had, and it, Again, he's got to be one of the, the heroes of faith in my book, and yet he could not get healed physically. So the conclusion we came to last week was this. When God says no, he said it three times to Paul, it's not a reflection of your faith or lack of faith. Paul was a great man of faith, but God didn't want to heal him. If we respond correctly in those situations, there will be a, we can be a reflection of his grace, and that's what certainly Paul was. So now let's move on to our topic today. And I want to start with this. What should be the logical response to trusting that God will do what He promises? That's part of our definition, right? So what should be the logical response that I believe that God's always going to keep His promises, His presence, His mercy, and His grace? Let me ask you, should it be, okay, I'm going to get everything I can out of God. I'm going to figure out something he promised me, and I'm going to hold his, and it's all going to be all about me getting what I want. You think that's a logical response to that? Now, I would suggest to you the logical response to Almighty God and knowing his character, he's love, he's uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. My logical response to that should not be it's about me. I am in a presence, have a relationship with the Almighty God, my response should be bow my knee. My response should be, what can I do to serve you, God, that you would be so awesome to me? So I'm going to use a phrase or two words to kind of describe that. A natural response should be total surrender. Okay, God, <laughs> all I can do is, you know, I'm at your disposal 24-7, all in. That should be the logical response to that understanding of God. So, going back to what's extraordinary faith? I believe extraordinary faith is extraordinary surrender. So let's think about some of these folks in the video. How about Noah? God told him, hey, I want you to build this boat, and I'm going to give you all the instructions, how big it's going to be, and it's going to take you 100 years, and then it's going to rain and kill everybody. All right? Would you call that extraordinary faith? surrender. He built that boat to every detail. He spent that hundred years and uh, complete surrender. Uh, who else do we have? We had um, Abraham. Abraham. All right. I love this one. Can you imagine getting in your car and say, okay, God, I'm going to drive until you tell me to stop. That's what basically what Abraham did with his whole family. He packed them up. He headed south. And he kept going until God said, stop. This is where I want you to establish your family. 
All right. Was that extraordinary faith? I think so. Was it extraordinary surrender? I think that's big-time surrender, correct? Moses, same thing. So you can go through this list. I already mentioned Paul. So extraordinary, if I want to have extraordinary faith, the component I need is extraordinary surrender. Now, for any of you that are contemplating becoming Jesus followers, I want to give you a warning. I like to be upfront about everything. Here's a warning. If you're considering following Jesus, if that's, you know, something you've been thinking about, something you think about, you might want to do, let me give you this warning. A big part of following Jesus is surrender. It's not getting what you want. It's trying to give God what He wants. Now, I know that might be a little um, emotionally unsatisfying, <laughs> but that's a, truthfully what it is, and it is emotionally satisfying when you do it. So it's getting up each day and saying, okay, God, I'm yours. It's your day. How do you want me to spend it? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to say? Now, here I'm going to approach the teaching a little bit differently today. We're going to read different parts, actually the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He wrote a Gospel, the story of Jesus' life. It's different from the other three. It's really fascinating. And we're going to jump around at some things Jesus said. Different times he said different things. And I want you to figure out or try and figure out what's the common theme in Jesus' teaching. Because from different times he would say something very similar. And then with that context, we're going to tackle probably the biggest, I think, one of the biggest issues with faith as we understand it in the Bible. And that's those verses that everybody loves, like, ask God whatever you want and you can get it. Well, that's not exactly true. That's kind of a, well, it is. It's a misinterpretation. But it seems to say that. So, John's Gospel, we're going to start off in chapter 5. And we'll read through these kind of quickly, just to get the idea of what Jesus was trying to tell us. <clears throat> I have never acted and will not in the future act on my own. What? No, nope. Jesus said, I don't do anything of my own initiative, not my own idea. I listen to the directions of the one who sent me, God and act on those divine instructions. That's exactly what Moses did, and Abraham did, and of course, Noah, building that ark. For this reason, why, well, Jesus, why would you do that? For this reason, my judgment is always fair and never self-serving. Can you say that about yours? Can I say that about mine? No. But if I don't act on my own, if I only follow God's instructions, directions, then my judgment is going to be always fair and it's not going to be self-serving. So I'm committed to pursuing God's agenda, not my own. Let me say that again. I, my, I'm committed to pursuing God's agenda, God's ideas, God's plan, and not my own. So you mean, Jesus, you're not out on a happiness quest Trying to get God to do everything you want to do to make your life as, as fun as possible. No, no, no. That's not my goal. My goal is to figure out what God wants me to do. All right. So that's one time. Later on, chapter 12, he says this. 
I don't speak on my own authority. Well, Jesus, you have tremendous authority. It's not my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. Well, wait a minute, you don't, you don't have any your own ideas. You don't have your own thoughts. You don't express yourself. No, no, I don't have my own ideas. All my ideas come from the Father. He has the authority, and I'm just passing it on to you. Seems a little strange, Jesus. He got, the text goes on. And I know these commands, his commands, leads to eternal life. Ah, good reason. I want eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say because they lead to eternal life. Now, it's a simple plan. It's not so simple to carry out, but it's a simple plan, all right? Find out what the Father wants me to say, and I say it. Next verse goes on. For I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me. Not to do my own will. So you're under God's authority. You don't have your own will. You don't have your own plan. You don't have your own ideas. No, no, no. I, I just do the will of God who sent me and not my own will. Now, let me stop here. Jesus, why would you do that? Well, he gave us part of the reason. That's the, the source of eternal life. But I understand the character of God. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, merciful, gracious. Uh, I know that. 100% sure I know it. He's my Father. So consequently, it would be foolish to do anything else. Anything else would be less than perfect. Anything else would be less than my Father's will. So, I do what's the best, and the best thing is what God wants. So, we'll jump to another chapter in John's Gospel. What's this, chapter 9, I believe? Next verse. No, chapter 6. <laughs> and this is the will of God. He said, okay, the only thing I'm going to do is God's will. Well, what, what is the will of God? That I should not lose even one of all those he has given me. Ah. So your will is all about getting people into relationship with you. It's all about people. But that I should raise them up at the last day. That's part of being part of God's family. So what is God's will? Well, boiling it all down, it's about getting people into relationship with the Father. So, when I go about my life doing God's will, what should it encompass? Well, helping people get into relationship with the Father. <clears throat> Text goes on. For this is my Father's will, that all who see His Son and believe in Him should have eternal life. Go back to that again. Relationship with God that goes on for eternity. I die here on earth, I'll be resurrected, and I'll be in the presence of God. I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus, that's, that's so selfless. There's nothing about you. Yeah, exactly. Well, why would anybody follow that? Why would anybody do that? How did this teaching survive the first century? How did it, why did anybody write it down? You know, nobody's got, 20 years from now, nobody's going to read anything I wrote. We're reading something that was written 2,000 years ago, and it's about being selfless. Boy, that's really strange in our culture. What's our culture about? All about me. So, 
Another text, another place. Chapter 14. This is Jesus' last night on earth. And what do you think he's going to be teaching? Same thing he was been teaching his whole ministry. Don't you believe that I and the Father, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And we have this connection, this relationship. So consequently, the words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me and does his work through me. And that should be true of us too. The Holy Spirit lives in us and should be speaking through us and working through us. So Jesus, you, you're just kind of like this uh, conduit or this vessel or this, this uh, uh, pathway uh, for God to work through you. Yeah, that's all I am. Here to do the will of the Father. So, back to this extraordinary great faith. Great faith would be what? Results in great surrender. That's what Jesus did. He surrendered his will, his ideas, his plans, whatever, to the fathers because his father knows best. That's an old TV show. Anyway. So, all right. So that's our context, our understanding of what great faith is. Jesus demonstrated. He taught us what it was. So with that context, that same Next verse, no, two, uh, two verses later, after Jesus said that, we get to one of these, I'll say problematic verses, but maybe confusing. So Jesus goes on, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, you did all these miracles, you did these amazing things, and you eventually, you're going to rise from the dead. I, I'm not going to do that. I can't do that. But he said, you can be able to do greater things going to be with, because I'm going to be with the Father. So, preacher types like uh, me like to think that, well, uh, I can do greater things than Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, I got to think about this. And I, the only thing I can think of is this. Jesus, we don't know how many Jesus followers were around when Jesus was on earth. So let's say a few thousand. Maybe he had 5,000 followers when he, he rose from the dead. All right. How many Jesus followers has there been since then? Billions. Billions. So, consequently, that's greater than thousands. So, this is the way I interpret this. The greater things we can do is bring more people, or be God use us to bring more people into a relationship with Him. So, whose benefit is this? Is it for my benefit to say, hey, look at grace, I can do greater things than Jesus? No, 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 no. It's for God's benefit. Now we get to this next one, and people love this verse. Again, let's not take it out of context. We got it under the context of total surrender, correct? You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. There it is. And preachers teach this. If you have enough faith, you can get God to do whatever you want Him to do. Is that what that says? So the Son can bring glory to the Father. Hmm, that's a caveat on that, isn't it? So, yeah, I'll do anything you ask, as long as it brings glory to the Father. And he repeats it. Yes, ask me anything in my name and I will do it, as long as it brings glory to the Father. So, is this some kind of genie? Yeah. I'll just rub it and say, okay, God, 
you know, there's some teaching out there, some in the secular world, I understand, but even in the church, where if you visualize it, you can get it, right? So they say, you know, you want an uh, expensive house, you put a picture of a big expensive house on your refrigerator, and you just keep looking at it, and you keep desiring it, and maybe keep praying for it, and eventually you'll get it, right? Or maybe it's an expensive car, or maybe it's that gal or that guy, handsome guy, or pretty girl, or maybe it's just a big dollar sign. You know, I want lots of money, then I can get most of these other things. Is that what this verse teaches? Is that what Jesus is saying to us? No, no. What he's saying to us is, I need to come to you, God, and say, what do you want me to do with my life? You know, this is a biggie when I was 17. <laughs> what, do you, what do you want me to do with my life? And some of you in that age bracket, that's a pretty big question. You know, what profession are you going to go into? And then you get to that big question, who do you, if I get married, who do you want me to marry? Another big question. Um, ongoing questions. What do you want me to do with my time? What do you want me to do with my money? What do you want me to do with my relationships? How do you want me to treat me if you're married? How do you want me, how would you like me to treat your, my spouse? How would you like me to treat my kids? I've got grandkids. How do you like me to treat my grandkids as a pastor? How do you want to treat my parishioners? Uh, that's what this verse is about. Now, later on, John wrote some letters, or maybe sooner. We don't know exactly when each was written, but he wrote some letters, and we have them part of our New Testament. So this is John's words, basically paraphrasing what Jesus said. So this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us. So, he has an important caveat under, in here, and John understood, didn't he? I just can't ask anything, expect God to give it to me. <laughs> What's the caveat he uses? If I ask anything according to his will. Remember, Jesus said, I, I just do to come, come to do his will. Say what he wants me to say. Then he hears us. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of hate that part about his will then there, right? I like it to say I'll get anything I want. But that's not what it says. In fact, you might say, well, why even ask? Well, the Father tells us to. And it's, a, it's an important part of our spiritual development. <clears throat> and the next verse says this. And since we know that He hears us, when we make our requests, we also know that He gives us what we ask for. Again, caveat, according to His will. His will is perfect, so we wouldn't want anything outside of His will. So, God, what do you want done? God, what do you want done? What do you want me to do? Now, let me just say this. When you understand this, that Almighty God has a relationship with me, He is taking the time to tell me what He wants, whether it's read this book or prayer, whatever it might be, what an honor we should consider it to surrender to His will. So again, great faith, extraordinary faith results in great surrender. So I always like to think about pushbacks. Why don't we surrender? So that was a logical response. Because it's scary, isn't it? 
Well, my hesitations when I was 17. Become a preacher, pastor, that's scary. I don't know what young people, what vision you have for your future, what profession you want to go in. It's probably a little scary no matter what it is. So I'm going to try and illustrate this. Sometimes you and I have what can be called a backpack God. And we've kind of put God in that backpack, not literally in an image, I hope, but we figuratively have him in our backpack. And so when we get on an airplane, we certainly take God with us, don't we? Well, the airplanes can crash. They're dangerous. So I take my God with me when I get on the airplane or when I get in my car uh, or uh, I've got this important meeting uh, with my employer or the school board or whatever it might be, my teacher. So I take God with me. But when I want to go out Saturday night, uh, I don't think so. God, you stay home. Because I'm going to be doing some things that I don't want you involved in. And let's be honest, all of us have, in some respects, a backpack God, don't we? There's something in our lives that's just not in accordance with God's will, and so we kind of leave God in the backpack. That's not great faith. That's not total surrender, obviously. So let me give you another way to think about this. And actually, that's kind of an insult. Actually, it is an insult, isn't it? Say, God, I'll use you when I want to use you, and I'll leave you when I don't. Another, another way to look at this. What is a logical response to being in the presence of greatness? Isn't God the greatest of all? So what should be the logical response? Well, think, who do you think is great? It might be a musician for your musician people. Uh, might be some sports figure for sports people. Uh, maybe some preacher, religious person, whatever. If you were in the presence of that person, got to be in their presence, would you sit there and say, hey, I want this from you, I want this from you, I want this from you. Is that how you'd spend your time? I don't think so. You would be in a sense of awe, and you'd, you'd hang on every word they had to say and, and, and just be so grateful that they gave you some of their time. And you know, <laughs> when this happens often in our lives is when we are struggling. I'm going to use the word broken. We have a broken relationship. We have a broken uh, health issue. We have a brokenness somewhere. And the amazing thing about God is no matter how broken you are, how much you've left Him in the backpack, when you come, especially when you're broken, He receives us with open arms. And when we do this is when we understand the facade of we, you and I have control of life. Isn't it amazing how we think we have control so often? And then something happens and we realize, oh, nope, I'm not in control. So, surrender then should not be something scary. Surrender is not something to fear. From surrender comes Peace and purpose. And I don't know about you, but I like peace. <laughs> and I like my life to have purpose. Remember the thief on the cross uh, with Jesus? And last minutes of his life, possibly, he proclaims his faith in Jesus. And Jesus said, ah, sorry, too late. 
you should have done this when you had some life left so you could have served me and, you know, done some stuff for my benefit. Or, ah, no, what you did is too, too, too bad to forgive. What is Jesus' response to this guy? Ah, see you later <laughs> in paradise. The guy had no time to be of any use to the kingdom of God here on earth. But he got to the place of brokenness and he proclaimed his faith. You know, some of us pray the Lord's Prayer. There's a line in there I don't think we think about too much when we pray it. Your will be done, not mine. Remember that line? Do you mean it when you say it? Your will be done, not mine. You think surrender to God is scary? You know what's really scary? Not surrendering. Trying to live your life that you're in control. That's pretty scary. So, God invites you, me, invites us to our relationship, a personal relationship, characterized by trust or faith, if you prefer that word. Trust translates into surrender. That's what Jesus taught us. Um, surrender to God's will. And that's where life change takes place. Uh, this next uh, teaching series I'm going to do is going to be about emotion. And one emotion, mostly negative emotions, there's good ones, and one that I've struggled with over the years was anger. And you know how I used to try and conquer it by what? Determination. I cannot be angry, and then all of a sudden what happened? I would be angry. Now, I asked my wife this in the first service. She nodded her head. Do I have an anger issue anymore? She said no. So what changed? I stopped. It kind of sounds kind of strange. I stopped trying to do it with my determination because it didn't work. Years and years and years, it didn't work. What did it do? It's through surrender. God, I can't do this. You've got to do this. <laughs> so what I'm suggesting to you today is you pick an area, a backpack area or a, an emotional area, or some area of your life that's out of control or you think you have control, <clears throat> and invite God to take part. God, you're God, I'm not. Let me know how that goes. Final statement. Great faith is great surrender, and great surrender is simply what? Living our lives, it's our definition, as if God is who He says He is, and he'll do everything he promised. You can have great, extraordinary faith. Can't try to think of a think about. So my wife and I came up with this. What is your faith, one to ten, whatever, what is your faith slash surrender level? In general, or you can put it in a certain area of your life, financial, uh, health-wise, some area. Take some time to think about that. And you and I can do better, right? We can have great faith. Let me pray with you. Father God, thank you. We thank you. I thank you so much for this series. It's been so helpful to me. Hopefully it's been for the folks that have participated. Because faith is so fundamental, yet some of these verses seem to make it confusing. Can I get you to do stuff I, that you don't want to do if I have enough faith? Well, no, no, no. My desire shouldn't get you to do what I want in the first place. 
My desire should be to do what you want because what you want is best. And God, I know at times we argue with that. We think we know better than you and forgive us for that because that's silly and that's foolish. But God, we pray for great faith, extraordinary faith, to trust you, (laughs) to trust you, every area of our lives. And if you're not a Jesus follower, and we already told you about the warning, coming to Jesus follower is the greatest thing you can do, but it involves surrender. But it's surrendering your imperfect will to God's perfect will. That's where peace comes, and that's where purpose comes. If you're struggling with peace and, and or purpose, I encourage you to come to Jesus. Uh, Father God, thank you that you are the God you are because <laughs> that's the kind of God we want to serve. That's the kind of God we bow to. That's the kind of God <clears throat> that we want. And we thank you in your son Jesus' precious name.